Welcome to Daily Airs. You are listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. There's something new on Airs LA every day. I'm your host, Annette Bro, and every Monday, I review varying events that happen during This Week in History, brought to you from A&E Networks, The History Channel, and History.com. February 19. On this date in history, in the year 1847, the Donner Party is rescued from the Sierra Nevada Mountains. The first rescuers reached surviving members of the Donner Party, a group of California-bound immigrants stranded by snow in the Sierra Nevada Mountains. In the summer of 1846, in the midst of a western-bound fever sweeping the United States, 89 people, including 31 members of the Donner and Reed families, set out in a wagon train from Springfield, Illinois. After arriving at Fort Bridger, Wyoming, the emigrants decided to avoid the usual route and try a new trail recently blazed by California promoter Lansford Hastings, the so-called Hastings Cutoff. After electing George Donner as their captain, the party departed Fort Bridger in mid-July. The shortcut was nothing of the sort. It set the Donner party back nearly three weeks and cost them much-needed supplies— After suffering great hardships in the Wasatch Mountains, the Great Salt Lake Desert, and along the Humboldt River, they finally reached the Sierra Nevada Mountains in early October. Despite the lateness of the season, the emigrants continued to press on, and on October 28, they camped at Truckee Lake, located in the high mountains 21 kilometers northwest of Lake Tahoe. Overnight, an early winter storm blanketed the ground with snow, blocking the mountain pass and trapping the Donner Party. Most of the group stayed near the lake, now known as Donner Lake, while the Donner family and others made camp six miles away at Alder Creek, building makeshift tents out of their wagons and killing their oxen for food. They hoped for a thaw that never came. Fifteen of the stronger emigrants, later known as the Forlorn Hope, set out west on snowshoes for Sutter's Fort on December 16. Three weeks later, After harsh weather and lack of supplies killed several of the expedition and forced the others to resort to cannibalism, seven survivors reached the Native American village. News of the stranded Donner Party traveled fast to Sutter's Fort, and a rescue party set out on January 31. Arriving at Donner Lake 20 days later, they found the camp completely snowbound and, the surviving immigrants delirious with relief at their arrival. Rescuers fed the starving group as well as they could and then began evacuating them. Three more rescue parties arrived to help, but the return to Sutter's Fort proved equally harrowing, and the last survivors didn't reach safety until late April. Of the 89 original members of the Donner Party, only 45 reached California. February 20 On this date in history, in the year 1962, John Glenn becomes the first American to orbit Earth. From Cape Canaveral, Florida, John Herschel Glenn Jr. is successfully launched into space aboard the Friendship 7 spacecraft on the first orbital flight by an American astronaut. 
Glenn, a lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Marine Corps, was among the seven men chosen by the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, also known as NASA, in 1959 to become America's first astronauts. A decorated pilot, he flew nearly 150 combat missions during World War II and the Korean War. In 1957, he made the first non-stop supersonic flight across the United States, flying from Los Angeles to New York in three hours and 23 minutes. Glenn was preceded in space by two Americans, Alan B. Shepard Jr. and Virgil Gus Grissom, and two Soviets, Yuri Gagarin and German Titov. In April 1961, Gagarin was the first man in space, and his spacecraft, Vostok 1, made a full orbit before returning to Earth. Less than one month later, Shepard was launched into space aboard Freedom 7 on a suborbital flight. In July, Grissom made another brief suborbital flight aboard Liberty Bell 7. In August, with the Americans still having failed to make an orbital flight, the Russians sprinted further ahead in the space race when Titov spent more than 25 hours in space aboard Vostok 2, making 17 orbits. As a technological power, the United States was looking very much second-rate compared to its Cold War adversary. If the Americans wanted to dispel this notion, they needed a multi-orbital flight before another Soviet space advance arrived. It was with this responsibility in mind that John Glenn lifted off from the launch pad at Cape Canaveral at 9.47 a.m. on February 20, 1962. Some 100,000 spectators watched on the ground nearby, and millions more saw it on television. After separating from its launching rocket, the bell-shaped Friendship 7 capsule entered into an orbit around the Earth at a speed of about 17,500 miles per hour. Smoothing into orbit, Glenn radioed back, Capsule is turning around. Oh, that view is tremendous. During Friendship 7's first orbit, Glenn noticed what he described as small glowing fireflies drifting by the capsule's tiny window. It was some time later that NASA Mission Control determined that the sparks were crystallized water vapor released by the capsule's air conditioning system. Before the end of the first orbit, a more serious problem occurred when Friendship 7's automatic control system began to malfunction, sending the capsule into erratic movements. At the end of the orbit, Glenn switched to manual control and regained command of the craft. Toward the end of Glenn's third and last orbit, Mission Control received a mechanical signal from the spacecraft indicating that the heat shield on the base of the capsule was possibly loose. Traveling at its immense speed, the capsule would be incinerated if the shield failed to absorb and dissipate the extremely high re-entry temperatures. It was decided that the craft's retro rockets, usually jettisoned before re-entry, would be left on in order to better secure the heat shield. Less than a minute later, Friendship 7 slammed into Earth's atmosphere. During Glenn's fiery descent back to Earth, the straps holding the retro rockets gave way and flapped violently by his window as a shroud of ions caused by excessive friction enveloped the spacecraft, causing Glenn to lose radio contact with Mission Control. As Mission Control anxiously waited for the resumption of radio transmissions that would indicate Glenn's survival, he watched flaming chunks of retro rocket fly by his window. After four minutes of radio silence, Glenn's voice crackled through loudspeakers at Mission Control 
and Friendship 7 splashed down safely into the Atlantic Ocean. He was picked up by the USS destroyer Noah, and his first words upon stepping out of the capsule and onto the deck of the Noah were, It was hot in there. He had spent nearly five hours in space. Glenn was hailed as a national hero, and on January 23rd, President John F. Kennedy visited him at Cape Canaveral. He later addressed Congress and was given a ticker tape parade in New York City. Out of a reluctance to risk the life of an astronaut as popular as Glenn, NASA essentially grounded the clean Marine in the years after his historic flight. Frustrated with his uncharacteristic lack of activity, Glenn turned to politics and, in 1964, announced his candidacy for the U.S. Senate from his home state of Ohio and formally left NASA. Later that year, however, he withdrew his Senate bid after seriously injuring his inner ear in a fall. In 1970, following a stint as a Royal Crown Cola executive, he ran for the Senate again, but lost the Democratic nomination to Howard Metzenbaum. Four years later, he defeated Metzenbaum, won the general election, and went on to win re-election three times. In 1984, he successfully sought the Democratic nomination for president. In early 1998, NASA announced it had approved Glenn to serve as a payload specialist on the Space Shuttle Discovery. On October 29, 1998, nearly four decades after his infamous orbital flight, the 77-year-old Glenn became the oldest human ever to travel in space. During the nine-day mission, he served as part of a NASA study on health problems associated with aging. In 1999, he retired from his U.S. Senate seat after four consecutive terms in office, a record for the state of Ohio. Glenn died on December 8, 2016. February 21. On this date in history, in the year 1952, Dick Button wins his second Olympic figure skating gold. Dick Button captured his first gold prize at the 1948 Olympics, becoming the first American to ever take home the men's title. After dominating men's figure skating at the 1948 and 1952 Olympics, Button retired from amateur competition and later became one of the sport's leading television analysts. Richard Totten Button was born on July 18, 1929 in Inglewood, New Jersey. He began skating as a boy and went on to win numerous titles. At the 1948 Winter Olympics in San Moritz, Switzerland, Button landed the first ever double axle jump in competition and beat his Swiss rival Hans Gerstweiler to take the gold. He was the youngest man to capture Olympic gold in figure skating and the first American to do so. Button dominated the sport that year, winning the United States, North American, European, and world championships in addition to the Olympics, the only person to accomplish this feat. On February 21, 1952, at the Olympic Games in Oslo, Norway, Button captured the gold again, landing the first ever triple loop in competition and beating Austria's Helmt Seibert. He won the national and world championships that year as well. Button retired from amateur skating in 1952 and went on to perform with the Ice Capades, as well as graduate from Harvard Law School. Additionally, he became a figure skating commentator and has covered the sport for ABC. 
Button was inducted into the World Figure Skating Hall of Fame in 1976. February 22. On this date in history in the year 1732, George Washington is born. George Washington is born in Westmoreland County, Virginia, the first of six children of Augustine and Mary Ball Washington. Augustine had three additional children from his first marriage. An initially loyal British subject, Washington eventually led the Continental Army in the American Revolution and became the new nation's first president. He is often referred to as the father of the United States. Washington rose to eminence on his own merit. His first job at age 17 was a surveyor in the Shenandoah Valley. In 1752, he joined the British Army and served as a lieutenant in the French and Indian War. When the war ended, Washington left the Army and returned home to Virginia to manage Mount Vernon, the plantation he had recently inherited upon the death of his older brother. He married a wealthy widow, Martha Dandridge Custis, in 1759. Although the couple had no children, Washington adopted Martha's son and daughter from her previous marriage. While in Virginia, Washington served in the colonial house of Burgesses and, like many of his compatriots, grew increasingly frustrated with the British government. He soon joined his co-revolutionaries in the Continental Congress. In 1775, the Continental Congress unanimously chose Washington to command the new Continental Army. In addition to advocating civilian control over the military, Washington possessed that intangible quality of a born leader and had earned a reputation for coolness under fire and as a strict disciplinarian during the French and Indian campaign. In that war, he dodged bullets, had horses shot from under him, and was even taken prisoner by the French. Part of his success in the Revolutionary War was due to its shrewd use of what was then considered the ungentlemanly but effective tactic of guerrilla warfare, in which stealthy hit-and-run attacks foiled British armies used to close formation battle line warfare. Although Washington led almost as many losing battles as he won, his successes at Trenton, Princeton, and Yorktown proved pivotal for the Continental Army and the emerging nation. In 1789, in part because of the leadership skills he displayed during the war, the Continental Congress elected Washington as the first American president. George Washington's legacy has endured a long process of untangling myth from fact. The famous cherry tree incident never occurred, nor did Washington have wooden teeth, though he did have only one tooth by the time he became president and wore a series of dentures made from metal and cow or hippopotamus bone. In portraits of Washington, the pain caused by his dentures is evident in his facial expression. Known for being emotionally reserved and aloof, Washington was concerned with personal conduct, character, and self-discipline but was known to bend the rules if necessary, especially in war. Although Washington was undoubtedly ambitious, he pursued his goals humbly and with quiet confidence in his abilities as a leader. An extraordinary figure in American history and unusually tall at six foot three, Washington was also an extraordinary man. He loved cricket and fox hunting, moved gracefully around a ballroom, was a Freemason and possibly a deist, and was an astute observer of the darker side of human nature. His favorite foods were pineapples, Brazil nuts, hence the missing teeth from cracking the shells, and Saturday dinners of salt cod. 
He possessed a wry sense of humor and, like his wife Martha, tried to resist the vanities of public life. Washington could also explode into a rage when vexed in war or political battles. Loyal almost to a fault, he could also be unforgiving and cold when crossed. When Republican Thomas Jefferson admitted to slandering the president in an anonymous newspaper article for his support of Federalist Alexander Hamilton's policies, Washington cut Jefferson out of his life. On at least one occasion, Washington's stubbornness inspired John Adams to refer to him as Old Muttonhead. An unenthusiastic political leader, Washington nevertheless recognized his unique and symbolic role in keeping a fledgling nation together. He worked hard to reconcile competing factions with his administration and was keenly aware of setting unwritten rules of conduct for future presidents. He struggled with advisors over what sort of image a president should project. He preferred one of dignity and humility and stumbled when encouraged to act out of character or monarchical. After two terms, old, tired, and disillusioned with vicious partisan politics, he resigned. His granddaughter remembered him as a prisoner of his own celebrity. Abigail Adams described Washington as having a dignity which forbids familiarity mixed with an easy affability which creates love and reverence. After leaving office, Washington returned to Mount Vernon, indulged his passion for the rural life, and started a successful whiskey distillery. A member of the Virginia planter class, he grew increasingly uncomfortable with the hypocrisy of owning enslaved people, yet publicly he promoted a gradual abolition of slavery. In his will, he requested that his enslaved workers be freed upon Martha's death. Although he and Martha had a good relationship, the great love of his life was Sally Fairfax, the wife of his friend George. Abandoning his characteristic self-control, Washington wrote Sally toward the end of his life, confessing that his moments with her had been the happiest of his life. On December 14, 1799, Washington died of a severe respiratory ailment. He humbly identified himself in his will as George Washington of Mount Vernon, a citizen of the United States. February 23. On this date in history, in the year 1940, Woody Guthrie writes, This land is your land. Born in Okemaw, Oklahoma in 1912, Guthrie lived and wrote of the American West, a place of hard-working people and harsh environments, rather than romantic cowboys and explorers. Though he was a son of a successful politician and businessman, during his early teens his mother fell ill and the family split apart. For several years, Guthrie spent his summers working as a migrant agricultural laborer. When he was 15, he left home to travel the country by freight train. Among his meager possessions were a guitar and a harmonica. Guthrie discovered an eager audience among the hobos and migrant workers for the country folk songs he had learned in Oklahoma. In 1937, he traveled to California, where he hoped to become a successful Western singer. He appeared on several West Coast radio shows, mostly performing traditional folk songs. Soon, though, he began to perform his own pieces based on his experiences living among the vast armies of the poor and dispossessed created by the Great Depression. While in California, he also came into contact with the Communist Party and became increasingly sympathetic to its causes. 
Many of his songs reflected a strong commitment to the common working people, and he became something of a musical spokesman for populist sentiments. This Land is Your Land, which Guthrie wrote while living in New York City, reflected not only Guthrie's support for the common land. folk, but also his land deep love for his country. Land. The verse Ballad celebrated the beauty and grandeur of America, while the chorus land. drove home the populist sentiment that the nation belonged to all the people, not merely the rich and powerful. Probably the most famous of his more than 1,000 songs, This Land is Your Land, was also one of his last. Later that year, Guthrie moved to New York, where his career was soon after interrupted by World War II. After serving in the Merchant Marines, he returned to New York, where he continued to perform and record his old material, but he never matched his earlier prolific output. Guthrie's career was cut short in 1954, when he was struck with Huntington's disease, a degenerative illness of the nervous system that had killed his mother. His later years were spent in a New York hospital where he received visitors like the adoring young Bob Dylan, who copied much of his early style from Guthrie. Guthrie died in 1967, having lived long enough to see his music inspire a whole new generation, and This Land is Your Land became a rallying song for the civil rights movement. February 24. On this date in history, in the year 1836, Alamo defenders call for help. On February 24, 1836, in San Antonio, Texas, Colonel William Travis issues a call for help on behalf of the Texan troops defending the Alamo, an old Spanish mission and fortress under siege by the Mexican army. A native of Alabama, Travis moved to the Mexican state of Texas in 1831. He soon became a leader of the growing movement to overthrow the Mexican government and establish an independent Texan republic. When the Texas Revolution began in 1835, Travis became a lieutenant colonel in the Revolutionary Army and was given command of troops in the recently captured city of San Antonio de Bexar, now San Antonio. On February 23, 1836, a large Mexican force commanded by General Antonio López de Santa Ana arrived suddenly in San Antonio. Travis and his groups took shelter in the Alamo, where they were soon joined by a volunteer force led by Colonel James Bowie. Though Santa Ana's 5,000 troops heavily outnumbered the several hundred Texans, Travis and his men determined not to give up. On February 24, they answered Santa Ana's call for surrender with a bold shot from the Alamo's cannon. Furious, the Mexican general ordered his forces to launch a siege. Travis immediately recognized his disadvantage and sent out several messages via couriers asking for reinforcements. Addressing one of the pleas to the people of Texas and all Americans in the world, Travis signed off with the now-famous phrase, Victory or Death. Only 32 men from the nearby town of Gonzales responded to Travis's call for help, and beginning at 5.30 a.m. on March 6, Mexican forces stormed the Alamo through a gap in the fort's outer wall, killing Travis, Bowie, Davy Crockett, and 190 of their men. Despite the loss of the fort, the Texan troops managed to inflict huge losses on their enemy, killing at least 600 of Santa Ana's men. The defense of the Alamo became a powerful symbol for the Texas Revolution, helping the rebels turn the tide in their favor. At the crucial Battle of San Jacinto on April 21, 
910 Texan soldiers commanded by Sam Houston defeated Santa Ana's army of 1,250 men, spurred on by cries of, Remember the Alamo! The next day, after Texan forces captured Santa Ana himself, the general issued orders for all Mexican troops to pull back behind the Rio Grande River. On May 14, 1836, Texas officially became an independent republic and joined the Union in 1845. February 25. On this date in history in the year 2004, The Passion of the Christ opens. Mel Gibson's controversial film about the last 44 hours of Jesus of Nazareth's life opens in theaters across the United States. Not coincidentally, the day was Ash Wednesday, the start of the Catholic season of Lent. The star of action-packed blockbusters like the Lethal Weapon series and Braveheart, Gibson was earning more than $20 million per movie at the time he decided to direct The Passion of the Christ, for which he received no cash compensation. Largely based on the 18th century diaries of St. Anne Catherine Emmerich, the film was a labor of love for Gibson, who later told Time magazine that he had a deep need to tell this story. The Gospels tell you what basically happened. I want to know what really went down. He scouted locations in Italy himself and had the script translated from English to Aramaic, thought to be Jesus' first language, and Latin by a Jesuit scholar. Gibson's original intention was to show the passion of the Christ without subtitles in an attempt to transcend the language barriers with visual storytelling, as he later explained. With dialogue entirely in Latin, Hebrew, and Aramaic, the film was eventually released with subtitles. A year before The Passion of the Christ was released, controversy flared over whether it was anti-Semitic. Abraham Foxman, head of the Anti-Defamation League, went on record saying that Gibson's film could fuel hatred, bigotry, and anti-Semitism. Specifically, its opponents claimed the movie would contribute to the idea that Jews should be blamed for the death of Jesus, which has been at the root of much anti-Jewish violence over the course of history. For his part, Gibson categorically denied the allegations of anti-Semitism, but they continued to haunt him years after the film's release. In July 2006, he was arrested for driving under the influence. A leaked police report of the incident stated that Gibson made anti-Semitic remarks to the arresting officer. Gibson later acknowledged the report's accuracy and publicly apologized for the remarks. Meanwhile, Christian critics of the film's story pointed to its departure from the New Testament and its reliance on works other than the Bible, such as Emmerich's Diaries. Gibson, who put millions of his own money into the project, initially had trouble finding a distributor for the film. Eventually, New Market Films signed on to release it in the United States. Upon its debut in 2004, The Passion of the Christ surprised many by becoming a huge hit at the box office. It also continued to fuel the fires of controversy, earning harsh criticism for its extreme violence and gore. Much of the film focuses on the brutal beating of Jesus prior to his crucifixion, which many saw as overkill. The film critic Roger Ebert called The Passion of the Christ the most violent film I have ever seen. Gibson's response to similar charges was that such a reaction was intentional. In an interview with Diane Sawyer, he claimed, I wanted it to be shocking, and I wanted it to be extreme, so that they see the enormity, the enormity of that sacrifice, 
to see that someone could endure that and still come back with love and forgiveness, even through extreme pain and suffering and ridicule. And that wraps up our This Week in History podcast for February 19 through 25. If you'd like to learn more about Airs LA, including streaming audio podcasts and more, we invite you to visit and follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook social media platforms. This podcast is for the sole use of our blind and print-impaired audience. Any unauthorized use is prohibited. I'm Annette Rowe, and I'll return next week to bring you more events that happen during Next Week in History. Until then, thanks for listening.